Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast by the Ellen McCarr Foundation, where we look behind the stories of a circular economy. And this is a first episode of a special series on this podcast where we're reminiscing, recounting from the foundation's recent big event at the Roundhouse, our Innovation Day event. And I'm joined on this podcast series by my co-host, Jules. Welcome, Jules. Hi, Sebs. Great to be here. You know, Jules, we co-hosted this event together and we haven't actually said a word to each other since we got off stage. So I hope you've been really well. But this is also a chance for us to kind of reminisce and remember the joy of that event. Absolutely. So yeah, it was the Foundations Network event and it was back in March 31st. And as you said, it was at the Roundhouse. And what we were doing is really shining a spotlight on circular economy innovation. And we're looking at three main things, that innovation towards a circular economy that is regenerative by design is good for the future of the economy. And it's also key to reverse biodiversity loss and fix climate change. Also that actually innovation is happening already and we saw loads of it on the day. But we also know that more is needed to make the economics work and scale. And over the course of this four-part series, we'll be sharing some of the highlights from those onstage conversations and adding our own commentary as well, Jules. I mean, we only got to ask the questions at the Roundhouse. Now we can say what we really think. (laughs) Behind the scenes access. Well, should we kick off then? I think so regenerative by design. Let's take a look at how the circular economy can help us reverse biodiversity loss and fix climate change. It's a big claim to make and we're going to try and zero in on it by zooming in on the topic of food. Um, We'll be hearing how and why a musician and a TV presenter turned to regen farming. Personal favourite of yours, I was about to say, that might have been my favourite interview ever. And we'll speak with, uh, well, apart from this one, well, clearly, and we'll speak, sorry, <laughs> We'll speak with a organisation that connects people who are trying to farm in a better way with the big buyers of food. Absolutely. But before that, you actually spoke with one of our colleagues at the foundation, Gael, and all about the big food redesign, thinking about actually what does the future of f- food look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? And that publication makes some of the big claims that you uh, already laid out for us, Jules, which is that it that it is possible to grow food in a way that's better for farmers, better for the long-term security of our food, more nutritious, tasty food, but also reverses biodiversity loss and um, mitigates against climate change. Now, I should say in this conversation, Gael did have some kind of conceptual food products on stage with her. Now, she describes them in a load of detail. So I think you'll get the picture, but just in case you hear us referencing things that we're holding, that's what that's all about. And I started by asking whether the big promises made in the big food redesign are really possible. Today, the uh, food system is responsible for a third of greenhouse gas emission. Um, so if we, doesn't, if we don't fix uh, food, we won't be able to fix the climate. But it doesn't have to be that way. Um, the food system can be a force for regeneration. Uh, an efficient way to do that would be that food brands that have immense sourcing power use it to signal the demand to farmers for a much broader range of ingredients, as well as practices that regenerate nature. So that instead of bending nature to produce food, which is what we're doing today, food would be designed for nature to thrive. 
And when I say designing food, I mean selecting ingredients that go in the recipe of the products. I mean how they deciding how they're sourced, how they're grown, and how they're packaged and delivered to customer. These decisions, they affect the taste and the smell of the products, but they also affect the environmental impact. What is decided is the business case, but also how much it's going to cost the earth. So you're saying two things are really interesting. That, well, lots of things are very interesting there, so Gail. The two things I want to pick up on, one is that our food is designed, yes. just like this beautiful outfit I'm wearing, um, and also that the intervention point that the report looks at is the kind of big buyers of the food, effectively. We'll come back to that. What does it look like to design a food product with nature rather than bending nature to create food products? And actually, we don't need to talk about this hypothetically, right? Well, so I, I have, I've been on a trip to the future, picked up some products at the supermarket and brought them back to you. So it could look it's like... It's a good use of going to the future, get some futuristic food products. Exactly, it's going to be really good. So what have you got here? Let me hold this for so you. So we have a, a line of cheeses called Silvo. Uh, it's made with dairy and walnut milk that are grown in a Silvo pasture. So Silvo pasture is where the cows graze under the trees and fertilize the ground, and the trees provide shelter and shade uh, in exchange for that. And this, I mean, it's worth saying that this is not, there's not actually cheese in here. Sadly. These are concepts and ideas. Yes. Yeah, exactly. um, so what makes this better? So, in so many ways, including the taste, but 90%, so the farms that produce that um, cheese could see their greenhouse gas emission reduced by 90%, which is quite significant. Plus, for the farmers, that means a diversification of their income. They don't have to rely on the price of milk alone. Great, so that's that one. That's You've one. also got uh, something for breakfast. Yes, we do. So we have Climate Crunch, which is a, a line of cereals made of wheat and peas that are mixed in the same proportion that they are uh, intercropped in the field. So intercrop means you have a, a line of wheat and a line of peas next to each why, other. Why add peas into something like this? I mean, surely if we're farming regeneratively, um, you know, that the wheat is farmed regeneratively, we can just use wheat. What's the benefit of adding a different ingredient into our cereal? So many benefits. For the peas, for example, they fix nitrogen in the soil, which nourishes the wheat and reduces the need for synthetic input. But also, it's important to know that 60% of our food comes for four crops only out of the hundreds of thousands of crops that we have in the world. So if we want to make a nature-positive food system happen. If we want to make the transition viable for farmers, they need to be able to sell all the outputs of their farm. So that means designing products with a much broader range of ingredients that we are doing today. And, I mean, it's worth saying that in nature, you don't see huge, just monocrop kind of diversity, right? And, and there's an abundance of food, nutrition and nature. So this is about trying to replicate how the most effective system in the world does it. Exactly. And it's going to look different depending on uh, where you live and the geographies, obviously. Great. And then we've got dessert. And dessert, yes. So then we have the cookies that are um, all made from upcycled ingredients. So upcycling means uh, using a, a part of a crop or a crop that otherwise would have been wasted using it as an ingredient. So, for example, this one has uh, coffee cherry that usually is left to rot in the field and produces a lot of methane. It's an amazing uh, ingredient for flour. It's also sweetened with cocoa fruit pulp, which usually also is discarded. What's so interesting about upcycling? 
Oh, I love upcycling. But, I, <laughs> but if, if you think about it, I mean, it's quite crazy because if instead of discarding, you're using that part of the crop or these crops that are not used, you're essentially doubling the value uh, of the input that we're put into it in the first place. So the water, the soil, um, the human labor, etc. And I guess, I mean, like the, these are valuable ingredients, right? I mean, eventually they need to go back into nature. Let's not talk about that process, but they're valuable ingredients. So, okay, so we've got these, these inventive, creative, fun designs that we've put some thought into for our port. How do brands take this on and start designing such products? Well, they read our report, but if I need to sum it up, it's harnessing circular design for food. So that means using principles of the circular economy applied to the design of food products. And if I go even more into concretely what that means, that means when you're creating a recipe for a product, choosing ingredients and sourcing them, choosing ingredients that are more diverse, so the hundreds of thousand crops that we have available, um, that are, have lower impact, that are upcycled like this one, and all of them regeneratively produced so that instead of bending nature to produce food, we design food for nature to thrive. So we just heard from Gael that the circular economy is key in tackling climate change and biodiversity loss. And she was talking about some products that she had with her to show the future of food. What should we have taken away from that, Seb? I mean, I think what I really like about the story that's told in the Big Food Redesign report is that it shows us we can't just make tweaks and expect better outcomes. We can't just source our food differently. And I know I'm making hand gestures, Jules, and nobody can see that apart from you. Um, But actually, by thinking about how we design our products fundamentally differently from the outset, we're also innovating with the rest of the system. So we kind of get into a place where we're doing horizontal innovation across the food sector versus just kind of vertical innovation. What does the procurement team do? What does the design team do? And so on and so forth. Um, and now obviously all of that kind of is about, is geared towards how do we su- better support and make sure that more regenerative agriculture happens. I think Gail used that term a couple of times. What does that mean? Yeah. And actually, you know, we talked a lot about the theory there and some examples, but we actually brought a couple of people on stage with us who've got a lot of experience actually of trying to run a regenerative farm. So Andy Cato and George Lamb are co-founders of Wild Farms. And we talked about their approach and actually how the outcomes on their farm differ from conventional farms. Now, these were no these two are not exactly ordinary farmers, right, Jules? We've got someone from the band, formerly from the band, Groove Armada and a former TV presenter. What's their story? Well, yeah, they have got unconventional farming backgrounds. Um, You'll hear them talk about where they met, um, which is not, I think, your typical farming story. And I started by asking them really that question, how and why did they get into farming? Well, from my perspective, uh, it started on the way back from a gig, in fact, so definitely music related. And I picked up an article that was about uh, what we might call industrial food production um, and its consequences. Uh, And it was a brilliantly written article, and it ended with a line that said, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. And my response to reading that was uh, initially a quest for self-sufficiency. So quite late in life, I I planted my first seed. And from the moment that I saw those plants sort of become food on uh, on the table, it was such a fascinating process that I went down a a rabbit hole of soil and plant um, research and the more you understand, the more you realise what's happening in, our, in the agricultural land that sustains us uh, and what an uh, imperative there is to act. And um, 
And so, yeah, having sold my publishing rights to, to buy some farmland, here we are. Wow. And George, how did you get into it? I, I, um, I met Andy in a nightclub. Um, uh, in Ibiza. And uh, I'd, I was a TV presenter and I'd had an existential crisis. I was a game show host. I realized, I actually was thinking about the last time I was in this room and I was hosting the Top Shop uh, Christmas Party 2012, which is so quite a jump on from that. Um, uh, real bastions of sustainability, Top Shop. Um, uh, and so uh, I. I um, yeah, I met Andy. I'd been, I'd been, I went off travelling. I went to the east, I went to India, yeah. I went to the jungle, tried to find myself. I was looking for meaning, um, didn't find much. Ended up back in Ibiza in a party, met Andy. Um, and, then, and then all of a sudden, as I'm sure everybody in this room has had, uh, he spoke his truth to me. And when you hear somebody tell you something that's absolutely like every fibre of their being means it, uh, it's very compelling. Mm. Uh, and also, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who likes people who put their money literally where their mouth is and like selling your publishing rights uh, to a successful band to go and buy a hundred hectare farm down in Gascony uh, is a super weird move basically on paper <laughs> and so I was like this guy's great uh, and I went to the farm and I met I met Andy's family and I saw what he was trying to do uh, and I could see that the yeah. scale of, of what he was trying to do was kind of you know it's a Herculean feat um, I, 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 I as I say was kind of listing around trying to figure out what I could do uh, and and I just offered my services and you know I'd I don't know how I can help, but I know I can help and I can amplify things and I can, you know, shout about it. And we spent, I then managed to rope in another mate of ours uh, who, who's, uh, who's the third co-founder, Ed. Um, and, uh, and we were basically a kind of shoulder to cry on and conciliary and trying to stop him going bankrupt for the first, you know, however many years. And, um, and then two years ago, uh, we decided to, to get serious and... Um, and yeah, we managed, and through very fortuitous circumstances, managed to move Andy to the UK. Neither Ed or I speak French, so we weren't much used to him over there. Got Andy over here. He won a, he won a 300, uh, sorry, no, uh, 3,500 applicants for a National Trust property uh, just outside Swindon. And he, he got it. And now we've got 41 farms up and down the country between Cumbria and Cornwall um, and, uh, and about 200 stockists. And, and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're rocking. <laughs> This is amazing. So, I mean, we obviously want to talk to you about your histories, but let's talk about farming for a second. So, you've sold your publishing rights, you've got these farms. What does your approach look like, and how do the outcomes actually then differ from conventional farming? Well, I mean, we'll have to cut a, long, a very long story short here, I think, but, um, because it was a very long, winding road. I was confronted with the reality of heavy degraded soil uh, and, uh, and, and how you've, you find a way back from that. So it was in such bad state where I bought this farm in, in France uh, that I was forced to, to, to try and find solutions. Uh, and to cut to the chase, um, conventional farming is, is, is all about monocultures. And so we've created this situation where we have the single type of plant over, over vast areas. And as soon as you do that, you've created something which never exists in the natural world. And so you have to prop it up because all the biological processes don't function anymore. So in a conventional setting, it's on average, it's about a barrel and a half of oil-based products per hectare just to keep that thing rolling because it can't be independent in terms of fertility or, or, or resistance to pests or diseases or whatever. The whole thing has to be held together with, with inputs, basically. So the monoculture uh, is the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, the, so you have to find a way of farming with a lot of biodiversity, not just around the edges and in yeah. beetle banks and stuff, but in the field. 
And so um, the result of all the trials and tribulations in France was this system where you got infield biodiversity growing alongside the crops with a new set of machinery to manage that. Uh, and so um, what you have is kind of infinite, is infinitely sustainable sort of complex abundance rather than the kind of destructive simplicity of the monoculture. Amazing. And actually, I've heard World Farm talk about fix food, fix the planet. I was wondering, could you add some context to that in terms of your approach to making flour and how that helps? Yeah, so, I mean, the ecological mega crisis is looming. We all know it. It's been interesting. I've been, you know, hanging out with my mum quite a bit recently and watching te like terrestrial television. And when you uh, watch the advert break, every major global corporation is telling you, hi, like we're Volkswagen. You need to sort out the planet. Hi, we're, you know, Purcell. We need to sort out the planet. So that's the, that's the narrative that's being thrust on people. And yet it can feel abstract and it can feel overwhelming and we all know we need to do something, but like, you know, is my recycling enough? And so for me, I feel the real trick to all of this, if it's going to be a success, is, is giving the consumer agency. And so what we're trying to say to them is, look, every time you go to the shop and you buy food, you're, you're essentially shaping the health of the planet. So through food, through your consumption, we can fix the planet and, and you know, I think that's a very simple message. I think it's compelling, and, and I, feel that, uh, I feel that if we can get that transferred across to, to the everyman, you know, we talk a lot about being on the road to Greg, so this is not, you know, at the moment, for sure, it's expensive um, because we're trying to re reward the farmers equitably, um, but ultimately, we're on the road to Greg's, and if we're not in Greg's and Domino's and Subway and all the rest of it, this whole thing's a waste of time. Yeah, and actually, you talked about customers and a bit about transparency and traceability there. I know that's actually quite at the heart of what you're doing. How does that play out in your business? Well, I mean, it's all about building. This is a field-to-plate supply chain, you know, and so what we're saying to, to, to customers is, as George was saying, through your food choices, that's your greatest single point uh, of agency. And actually, there's a degree of simplicity about the message. You know, the, 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 the soil microbiome, my gut microbiome, everything's linked. We're all part of these ecosystems. 70% of the UK landscape is agricultural land that we re-engineer twice a year. So the way we've done it so far uh, is responsible for uh, significant CO2 emissions, the fact that we've lost 80% of our insects, uh, the fact that we've got much more flooding, uh, the fact that we were brilliant at producing empty calories and the whole public health crisis of these degenerative diseases that we just normalize, but there's nothing normal about them at all. It's because we've got nutrient deficiencies in our food supply. So by explaining that actually all of these problems start um, with the land, and, and by acting on your food choices, you can re, um, we can resolve all these problems. And here's a supply chain where you know what's happening in these fields and it's going to come all the way to your plate. And you can see that. Uh, and so basically, it's a direct um, a chance to participate directly in, in landscape regeneration. Yeah. By this time next year, you'll be able to QR code our products and you'll be able to see the whole thing. Amazing. And, you know, you mentioned money, you've joked about stopping him going bankrupt, but there is something actually within that, right, in terms of this transformation from conventional farming to your approaches. Like, how does that journey look like from an economic perspective and what would actually make it easier? Both of you, either of you. From a farmer's perspective? Well, you say from a farmer's From a farmer's perspective, um, we're in a situation at the moment where a farmer has no control over his input costs and he has no control over his sale price. In any other business, that would be described as insanity. Mm. Uh, and so 
what we um, can offer to, to farmers if, there are, if there's consumer demand. And that's the key thing here. We need, we need demand. Because if, we, if we've got the demand, we've got farmers waiting to join us, and so we can give them certainty. Uh, and the, um, the sort of the second layer financially is going to be that we're at the moment rewarding farmers not just for their crops but for the ecosystems in which they're grown. Uh, and we're working hard to, to, to make sure that other revenue streams come into that from people who are interested in biodiversity and, and carbon and so on. And that's what's going to get us to Greg's and, and to the high street price-wise. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, really just uh, we need from a commercial perspective, we need the medium sized casual dining to come on board now. You know, we've got 75,000 acres, which is which is about 1% of British arable land on our wait list with zero marketing. The farmers, you know, we're going to farmers, we're saying we're going to pay you, pay you well over what you're earning at the moment. You've got no input costs and you never have to wear a hazmat suit again. Like that's an easy sell basically. All of the artisan bakeries, they're on board, they get it. Ideologically, we're aligned. Uh, and now what we need, and we're in the process of talking to a lot of guys in the high street, but we need to get a couple over the line, is, is to, uh, in order for us to be able to have that takeoff, that guaranteed, you know, offtake with the farmers, we need to get these medium-sized players to, to, you know, obviously they talk a lot about it in their kind of outward-facing advertising. Uh, but then, uh, of course, you, you hit bottlenecks when you start talking to the procurement team. So mm -hmm. we need bigger brands to start thinking about about, let's move some of that marketing budget over and let's, let's, let's take the, you know, bit of the strain off the procurement guys and, uh, and then you know, let's, let's start buying the right stuff that's supporting a, a food system that's, that's going to help the planet out. Amazing. Right, we've got time for one last question each. It is, what is the thing that has surprised you most as you've set out on this journey? You go first. <laughs> what is the thing that surprised me most? The rate at which... Uh, the rate at which people, the majority of people seem to be aligning on this. Obviously, sometimes, you know, you can feel you're in an echo chamber, you know, and, and, um, uh, but I, I genuinely feel that people are waking up. I've been kind of involved in what, you know, people might have thought as kind of alternative ways of doing things, thinking about things for the last 10 or so years. Uh, but certainly the, the, the kind of spurt uh, has been exponential over the last couple of years with people starting to understand, oh, right, okay, this is, this is not just some abstract thing that's going to go away. You know, I think Greta's got a lot to, you know, we should be very thankful to her. I think the work that, you know, the guy's doing here, you know, we should be very thankful to that. Um, XR, you know, all of that stuff, it's brought it to the fore. Um, I read a book about four or five years ago called um, How Soon Is Now, which is about this, you know, at that point, this was, you know, it was like far out stuff and I'm going around saying, the world's ending, everybody, you know, and like now, like people get it. Um, and so our, tri our job now, I think, is, is to get people to understand they have agency in it and like we can turn this ship around. It's going to take a while, but like we can do it. Thank and we've all definitely got a vested interest in turning it around. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, thank you. And what's the thing that surprised you most? Well, I suppose on a, on a sort of personal level, it's, it's the transformation of, of being in, in these fields in Gascony, like trying all this stuff, just trying and trying, getting knocked down and getting up again and, until coming across this system, which, which allows us to get biodiversity back in the arable fields, to sort of go from that and quite rapidly find myself talking to you today or talking to Jeremy Clarkson in my farm fields yesterday. It's kind of quite surreal. But on a, on a more important level... Um, uh, it's that the powers, nature's powers of recovery, when you give it half a chance, are boundless. And, and we don't need any miraculous uh, inventions to turn this thing around. We've got the green leaf, which is the most miraculous thing possibly that's ever been invented. And all we've got to do is keep the earth covered in them. And we've got everything we need to do that. 
Okay, well, I didn't exactly know where we're going when we were talking about meeting in a club in Ibiza there for a bit, Jules, but you managed to get it back on track. What an amazing story. It is. I think these two have got a lot of stories and I would have wanted to talk to them all day, but it was important to hear them actually talk about how they converted their farm and the type of impact they're having now. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about their story is, is that Andy and to an extent George both talked about this kind of trial and error and actually it taking quite a long time. Obviously, they're then looking at this kind of scale aspect, hundreds of farms versus just one farm working really well. Um, and we've already heard Gail speak about the importance of food businesses as big buyers, food brands, food manufacturers, to really help elevate the benefits of people who are farming, either Andy and George themselves, but people who are farming with similar principles in mind. But it leads to the question, like, how do we better create that connection? And it's as if you know that we brought someone on stage with us to talk about that. So Chris Tahar from Renature does just that. And actually, we heard him talk while well, you talked to him about those missing links and some of the remaining barriers that still need to be overcome. What's good about um, this podcast, Jules, is that you were able to use your Netherlands background to say that name better than I did on stage. And we You're going to give it that, a go now. We can cut that part <laughs> out of uh, of the recording but I started by asking us what kind of dynamics need to exist between farmers and businesses for that relationship to thrive what we see though is that there is a missing connection we've been talking about connection a lot where uh, the corporate world that needs to change that needs to optimize its supply chain they don't have a direct connection to the smallholders and the farmers that that produce all of that food and all those ingredients. So one of the ways in which we try to solve that, we have a portfolio of almost 100,000 smallholder farmers in the global south. Um, and whilst corporates are trying to figure out their traceability and which farmers they buy from and where, we can actually help them already setting up regenerative systems in the local context that work for them. So that by the time they figure out which farmers we actually work with, that they have a regenerative system that can be applied to that local context with those farmers and with local capacity to really help it uh, accelerate. It's really interesting what you're saying because obviously this whole event is themed around innovation. And very often when, at least when I think of innovation, maybe I'm just a bit dim, um, it, you know, you think of like tech gadgets or something really like sharp like that. But actually innovation is just as critical in kind of the processes and connections that we're building across our economy, which is what you're kind of describing there. How do we link these people up? You know, 70, I think it's something around 70% of the world's food comes from smallholder farmers. Yeah. How do we scale these practices across that kind of dynamic? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think the key one of the starting points is that we have to stop seeing smallholder farms as a charity, right? They are, as we've heard, farmers are entrepreneurs. They know what needs to be done, but they're stuck in a system where through either uh, input costs or uh, fl fluctuations in the market of their, of their products, they are forced into a system of unsustainable practices, of, of relying on inputs. Um, and so what really needs to change there is that we need to create a business case that works for smallholder farmers in the setting of a global food system. And one of the ways in which we can do this is if you show a farmer that there is a production system possible where they don't rely on these inputs, uh, where they can actually create a higher value, a higher profit for 
their farming system, they are on board, right? That's, that's easy. They understand what needs to be done. They've been doing this for decades. We're not going to tell them anything new. But that's only step one. And the way that we can really scale this is, I think, a combination of connection, right? We can train a farmer, but we can also train a farmer to tell other farmers to train other farmers, right? So it's not just about training that one or 10 or 100 farmers. It's about creating an understanding, about creating these ambassadors for regenerative agriculture that show other people it can change, it can be different, as well as an approach where we set up practical demo plots. This is not something that needs to exist on paper and convince people that way, but we create demo plots in regions where the food is produced and we show this is how it can be done. And it's, it's really a farmer-centric approach. So we listen to the farmer, what do they want, what do they eat, what do they produce, what's culturally relevant for them, what's possible for them in the situation. And we build local capacity because in the end, if, if we realize that this is incredibly context-specific, it's never possible to coordinate all of this from an office in Amsterdam, right? So we need to really build local capacity, rely on local expertise, and empower people to create a system that works for them as well as for us and for the corporate world. And it's worth just dwelling on that for one second, that Renature, you are working with farmers all across the globe. Correct, yeah. Um, and what you said there is that farmers know how to do this. We don't need to teach them how to manage the land. That is something that they have a lot of skills with. What they need help with, I guess, perhaps from business and perhaps from others, is in some ways the kind of cost of some of the transition that's involved. I mean, people talk about there being almost like a hockey stick mm. curve to farming your land in a different way. What is needed there? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing, what we've also just heard, is that there is a business case for regenerative agriculture, right? So intrinsically, we understand that working with nature, instead of trying to work against it and trying to squeeze it into these monoculture plots, but we work with the power of nature in order to protect and to nourish itself, as well as the communities around it, that makes sense. But also from an economic point of view, there is a business case there. There is higher farm profitability, higher quality, less dependence on input materials, less uh, risk of default, less risk of uh, being affected by climate change or droughts. So all of that works, but we also have to respect nature in the sense that we need to live by its cycles and its time, right? So if we implement a regenerative system now, it may take several years for those outcomes to really materialize. And so one of the ways in which this needs to be unlocked is that this needs pre-financing. And we need catalytic capital to really help smallholder farmers in making the transition and starting this up so that these benefits down the line, like ecosystem services or carbon credits or profitability, they will come. But what we need right now is pioneers and trailblazers that help us really accelerate that transition uh, at scale, but also in the region. So from all these different speakers, we heard actually that innovation towards the circular economy that's regenerative by design is good for the future of the economy and it is crucial to reverse biodiversity loss and fix climate change. Specifically, we dialed into farming. A better way of farming that regenerates nature is possible and food manufacturers and brands have a key role to play. And the common thread throughout all of these examples is that design and collaboration are critical. We heard so many stories of how it has to start by designing differently from the very beginning. And we're not just talking about doing less bad. It's about a different mindset and creating positive impact. And we also start 
wanted to hear a little bit about money making the economics work. And we'll hear more on that later in the series. We can't avoid the topic of money and scale. We cannot. It makes the world go round. We don't want to, actually. We're going to get to it later in the series. And actually, next up in this series, that's all for this episode, but next up, we're going to highlight how circular economy innovation is happening today. And in that episode, in the next episode, we're going to be zooming in on your world, Jules, actually, or at least your day-to-day world, which is the world of the fashion sector and specifically new business models. We are indeed. We'll be talking to H&M Foundation and Fashion for Good, all about fundamentally rethinking business models. And at its core, it's about businesses making money without making more clothes. So thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to us on whichever channel, Spotify, Apple, Google, whichever podcast channel you listen to, to get notified when the next episode of this series comes out and every time the foundation publishes a new podcast.